welcome to the preaching ministry of the Agape Baptist Church in George, South Africa. Good morning, church. If you would, please turn with me to Genesis 35. Genesis 35. We've been following the life of Jacob for the past 10 chapters in Genesis. He's now over 100 years old, and his part in the story of Genesis is coming to an end. This really is, in many ways, the closing of Jacob's story. He will appear again in Genesis, but he will only be a supporting character in the life story of his sons, and specifically of Joseph. Genesis 35 represents the end of an era. The story of the patriarchs with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as the main characters is coming to a close. And this is also the last time God will visibly appear and speak to man in Genesis. This is the last time. God will not reveal Himself this way again until He speaks to Moses from the burning bush later in Exodus, in the next book in our Bibles. Then we'll see in Genesis 36 that it will conclude Esau's story. So it jumps to Esau and spends a whole chapter on Esau. And then in Genesis 37, we'll see the beginning of Joseph's story and focusing around his story, how God uses him, and the story of his brothers. So as we come to this chapter, Genesis 35, as we come to this chapter that serves as this bridge between the story of the patriarchs and the story of the children of Israel, As we come to this, we're going to find a lot of information and scenes that are crunched together in this one chapter. So it's going to feel like seven different scenes or episodes or mini stories all crunched together in one chapter. Some of the information we'll see is put here simply to close Jacob's story. But other information is given in order to open a new chapter or to set the stage for the mini stories that will come later in the scriptures. But in the midst of these details, of the historical details that are really important and helpful for us for our understanding of the scriptures, in the midst of this, my hope is to draw your attention to a key question that is raised in this chapter the question, Who can ascend the hill of the Lord? So, what we're going to do is we're going to look at the passage. I'm going to walk scene by scene. As the scene ends, I'm going to try and just show the relevance of the scene and why it's important to us. And then at the end of the reading through the passage, we're going to attempt to answer this question, Who can ascend the hill of the Lord? Let's pray together and ask God to help us. Heavenly Father, thank You that You have given us the truth in Your Word. Thank You for revealing Yourself to us in this way. I pray now that you would glorify your name through your word. Lord, would you remove my flaws from this sermon? Would you cause me not to be a distraction, but instead that the truth, the the clear, pure truth of your word would glorify your name in the name of your son? Lord, would your people then taste and see the goodness of God And would they glorify you and rejoice in you and set their hope in you. You are our rock, the foundation of every hope we have. 
Lord, would we leave here today rejoicing with our minds and our way of thinking and our, the loves of our hearts be transformed today as we come to your word? And then would that change the way we live so that we can go out and be a, an aroma of the glory of God in George? This is what our desire is. We plead with you to do this through the power of the Spirit. Would you perform the miracle of transforming your people today? We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. So let's take a look at the book in Genesis 35, beginning in verse 1, and we'll go all the way through. Please bear with me as I stop, start, stop, start, just trying to help us get through the many scenes in this chapter. Verse 1. God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel, which means the house of God, and dwell there. Make an altar, altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. Let's stop there. Jacob has only half-heartedly obeyed God up to this point. We're thinking about the previous chapters and previous sermons. Jacob has half-heartedly obeyed God, and his daughter Dinah has been violated by Canaanites, and two of Jacob's sons have become mass murderers, not to mention that all of his other sons then rush into the city and become thieves and plunderers. That is where the last chapter ends, with his sad story of defilement and wickedness and sinning and mass murdering in the family of God, this, this, this family of Israel. And here in Genesis 35 verse 1, it's like God is saying, enough. Enough. Go to Bethel like you were supposed to in the first place. That's where this chapter begins. Verse 2. Let's keep reading. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had and the rings that were, in, that were in their ears. Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. And as they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. So as we see this, this preparing to go to Bethel, we see that these idols and earrings with pagan symbols, many times the, the cultures there, what, what we found in archaeology is that there are earrings with like moon shapes to them and other pagan symbols. So they're taking the, the actual graven images and these pagan earrings that like were kind of the superstitious protection they were wearing. They took it all and they brought them um, to this tree to be buried. We remember that Rachel brought with her the gods of her father, Laban. Remember that? She hid them in her saddlebags and she's had them apparently with her this entire time. And they also have, inc have increased their pagan and idol worship through plundering Shechem. So they said they took all the valuables and these little statues that, they, that people worshipped were covered in gold and silver and other precious stones. So here's the family of God going through Canaan, just laden with all of this idol worshipping uh, statues and earrings and all kinds of other things. And so they have all of this in their saddlebags, but in a symbolic way, Jacob now says, let's bury these objects of false worship in the ground. 
like you would bury a dead person. This act symbolizes that the idols are now dead to them, left behind in the ground with only worms for company. That's what this symbolic act of burying them in the ground is all about. Jacob also commands his family to wash themselves and to put on fresh clothes, which is another physical act that symbolizes putting off or forsaking past sinful ways of life. Jacob knew his family was guilty of rebellion, deceit, murder, theft, and idol worship. And he recognized their desperate need to be cleansed and purified before they ascended up the hill to Bethel, the house of God, the holy, almighty God. He knew their need. So let's keep reading now. Verse 6. And Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan, he and all the people who were with him. And there he built an altar and called the place El Bethel which means God of Bethel, because there God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. So Jacob arrives at Bethel, and he builds an altar for sacrifice. Remember back in Genesis 28 that Jacob promised to God that he would give him a tenth of all his increase. So that's back in 20. uh, he, He gave a vow to God and said, if you will go with me and you will bless me, then I will give a tenth of all my increase. And it is reasonable to assume that Jacob now in this scene fulfills his vow to God upon returning to the place of his vow in Bethel where he builds an altar for sacrifice, where he would sacrifice animals, which was the primary source and of their wealth, of his wealth, of his increase, was through the number of his flock. Think about it, though. Jacob kills and burns the best rams, the best goats, and the best bulls from his flock. And his flock is massive at this point. One-tenth of all his possessions go up in flames. It's not like he gave it to somebody, like Abraham gave it to Melchizedek way back in Genesis, and actually, you know, it actually did some good. It helped Melchizedek. No! One tenth of Jacob's wealth went up in flames with no physical, visible benefit whatsoever to any human being. We can't help but look at this as Western thinkers. We can't help but look at this and think to ourselves what a waste! What a waste. Possibly thousands of animals die this day for no apparent benefit. They go up in flames. But the reason why we're so bothered by this, you know, maybe you're not, but you know, if you stop and think about it, if you were there, we probably would say, what a waste. But the reason that we might be tempted to think that way is because we are so adept and proficient at laying up treasures here on earth. That's why it would bother our souls or our consciences to do this. God knows this idolatry of our hearts, and therefore God pokes at the idols of man's heart, and, and, and he says that he desires to be worshipped by his followers through the act of joyfully giving up a portion of our wealth. That's clear throughout Scripture, even in the New Testament, as the church is being spoke to through the apostles and and the Spirit, it's clear that God desires a portion of our wealth because He desires all of our heart. 
He even desires for us to do this, even, even if there is no visible benefit to anyone here on earth. Even if the only visible result was that our earthly possessions were consumed by fire, like in this story, even if that was the only benefit, God says He is pleased with a joyful giver and He will multiply our heavenly reward. He says, lay up treasure in heaven, even with your physical possessions. So that's what's going on here. Verse 8, let's keep reading. And Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died. She was buried under an oak below Bethel. So he, Jacob, called its name Alan Bakuth, which means oak of weeping. So this, another one of those scenes or, or parts of the story that were like, why is that there? Where did, where did Deborah come from? This is the first time she's mentioned as having traveled with Jacob. Remember, Deborah is his mother's servant who's supposed to be way back, I believe, in Hebron with Isaac, who he hasn't seen yet. And it's been 20 years that he's been gone, over 20 years. So how's Deborah all of a sudden with Jacob here in Bethel, which is north of Hebron? So we're just, we're not really told by the scriptures. We do not know why Deborah all of a sudden pops up on the scene and now dies here in Bethel with Jacob and his family as they travel north to actually go see Isaac. So as they travel south to go see Isaac. But as you read Jewish tradition, it states that, that before Rebekah, Jacob's mother, died, she sent her servant Deborah north to call Jacob home. And the reason I think this tradition, where this came from, is because that's exactly what Rebekah said she would do when she sent Jacob away in the first place to save his life. She said, go north to my brother Laban, and when the wrath of your brother Esau cools off and he no longer wants to murder you, then I will send for you. That's what she said back in Genesis 27. So the scriptures doesn't say, it doesn't say why Deborah was there, but it is possible that Rebekah actually sent her servant in one of the last acts of Rebekah and of Deborah, because they both apparently, we know Deborah dies, and apparently Rebekah dies before um, Jacob even gets home. Apparently their last act was to say, come home. So I believe that is why the story is here. Verse 9, let's keep reading. God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Padan Aram and blessed him. And God said to him, your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel, which means God fights. That shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. Verse 11. And God said to him, I am God Almighty, which is the Hebrew word El Shaddai. El Shaddai means God Almighty. I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I give to Abraham and Isaac I will give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. Then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken with him. <clears throat> and Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone. He poured out a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. So Jacob called the name of the place where God had spoken to him, Bethel, which again means the house of God. This is the same covenant language that was spoken to Abraham all those years before. God calls himself, this is the, the similarities. God both in both scenes calls himself El Shaddai. He commands, be fruitful and multiply. He promises descendants, promises that he would be the father, that Jacob would be the father of kings. 
And that his children would one day find rest in the promised land. So this is what we would call the Abrahamic covenant. And God is renewing his covenant to Jacob, affirming it, saying, I have not forgotten my covenant to you. Verse 16, let's keep reading. Then they journeyed from Bethel. When they were still some distance from Ephrath, Rachel went into labor, and she had hard labor. And when her labor was at its hardest, the midwife said to her, Do not fear, for you have another son. And as her soul was departing, for she was dying, she called his name Ben-Oni, which means son of my sorrow. But his father called him Benjamin, which means son of my right hand. Verse 19. So Rachel died, and she was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. And Jacob set up a pillar over her tomb. It is the pillar of Rachel's tomb, which is there to this day. This is the first time in the, in the scriptures that Bethlehem is mentioned by name. But it will not be the last time. Bethlehem would be the setting for the book of Ruth, which is coming. It's, it's the setting of the book of Ruth. And what we find out is that this, this, this lady who is not of Israel, she is actually redeemed by what, what, what will be called a kinsman redeemer. It's where she is a widow and one of the family members says, I will marry you and I will provide for you. I will make sure that you and your your mother even will not be destitute. It is a beautiful story. It's the book of Ruth. And the kinsman redeemer's name is Boaz. And he is from Bethlehem. It's one of the last statements in the book of Ruth. It it, It comes, we find out it's Bethlehem. And in the last statement, it talks about who Boaz's great grandson would be. And eventually we find out that their great grandson is David and that he would also be born in Bethlehem. And what we see is that we have this this interesting scenario where, where Rachel dies in Bethlehem. She calls her son the son of my sorrows, and then the father says, no, 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 no that's not going to be his name. His name will be son of my right hand. He'll be strong and you know, he'll, he'll, be, he'll be powerful. David comes along and we see that David actually is a type of this man of sorrow. And he is a type of the man or the, the son of God's right hand. David had much sorrow in his life. Most of his early years were running for his life. And you read the Psalms of his great sorrow. And he says, my Lord and my God, where are you? Many times in the, in the Psalms. But then we also see throughout his story and in the Psalms that he is actually the man after God's own heart, a man of God's right hand that God uses mightily for his name. So David is a type of these names. But these names given to a son born in Bethlehem would ultimately not be fulfilled by David. They would be lived out by David's promised descendant, Jesus the Christ. Because as we read his story, and as we see of all the promises about him in the Old Testament, we see that he is truly and ultimately the Son of God, born in Bethlehem. And he is the Son of God's greatest sorrow. And he is the Son who now sits at the Father's right hand. He is the man of sorrows, but the man of God's right hand. And so even all the way back in Genesis 35, we see whispers of the name. The name of Jesus who would come and his many, many names and many fulfillments of prophecy. Let's keep reading in verse 21. Israel, he's talking about Jacob and his family, journeying on and pitched his tent beyond the tower of Eder. While Israel lived in that land, Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. It's like, 
another unexpected scene that's just thrown into this into the story it feels like from our perspective but what we need to realize is that this is preparing um, for the story that will come and it explains to us why Reuben is passed over as the firstborn he is passed over and he is not given the firstborn's blessing it will go to another because of this incident and that's why it is here it's explaining the story to come laying the foundation for that let's keep reading now the sons of jacob were 12 the sons of leah reuben jacob's firstborn simeon levi judah issachar and zebulun the sons of rachel joseph and benjamin the sons of bilhah rachel's servant are dan and naphtali the sons of zilpah leah's servant gad and asher these were the sons of Jacob who were born to him in Padan Aram. And Jacob came to his father Isaac at Mamre, or Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had sojourned. Now the days of Isaac were 180 years. And Isaac breathed his last, and he died and was gathered to his people, old and full of days. And his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. We'll stop there. That may have felt like a, a lot of scattered information. I mean, we're, we're looking at multiple scenes, maybe seven or eight different scenes here. But remember, this is a bridge between the two eras, closing one part of the story and opening another and laying the foundation for the story to come as it would unfold. But in the midst of this bridge, God speaks to Jacob and commands him to go up to Bethel, the house of God. And that's where I'd like to spend the rest of our time, attempting to answer this question, this question, who can ascend the hill of the Lord? There are many other things that we could probably spend the, the, the remainder of our time looking at in this chapter, but for today, we'll just look at this question and attempt to answer it. To help us answer this question, we're going to turn to Psalm 24. So if you would please turn with me to Psalm 24. And, and don't worry, we're not abandoning Genesis 35, but actually what I believe is happening in this psalm is that it is looking back to, to Genesis 35 and helping us see a beautiful truth in this chapter. God has just commanded Jacob to go up to Bethel, the hill country where God's house or God's holy place was in Jacob's day. And knowing that God is holy and almighty, Jacob jumps into action and begins cleansing his family. So he, in his mind, this is the house of God. This is where God meets with human beings on earth. It's like Bethel to him is this middle place between earth and heaven or heaven and earth. It's where God comes and speaks to man. This is how Jacob is seeing this. It's where God's, it's God's house on earth. And David, I believe, picks up on this as he writes Psalm 24. So let's look at this psalm. Verse 1, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. The world and those who dwell therein, for he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. This is El Shaddai, as Jacob knows him. El Shaddai, God Almighty, the Creator God who has power over all things, for he made all things. This is how Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob knew God by this name, God Almighty. Verse 3 David asks the question Who shall ascend the hill? Of the Lord, this God, who can who can come near to him? Verse 3, the second part says, And who shall stand in his holy place? Who can who would dare? Who can do this? This is exactly what's on Jacob's mind as he look at looks at his rebellious, deceitful, 
mass murdering, thieving, and idolatrous family. I mean, if you're talking about people who've been flung with the dirt and the sin of this world, I think the picture is clear. This is what Jacob's thinking. How can I go to the house of God like this? The psalmist next answers this question. Who can ascend the hill of the Lord? Verse 4 in Psalm 24. He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. Now, if you think about those words carefully, this really is the story of Jacob throughout his life, putting off his old ways and the sinful past of his family. In our story today, Jacob commands his family to wash themselves, purify yourselves is the word he uses, to put on new clothing, change your garments, that's the words he uses, And to put away the foreign gods. Let's bury the idols that we've been lugging around with us in our saddlebags. Let's bury them. Let's put them to death. All these outward actions were intended to represent the inward reality of clean hands and pure hearts. We also know that Jacob and his family are deceivers. I mean, Jacob learned this at the University of Rebekah and Isaac where his parents just taught him how to be the best liar known to man. That's kind of like what Jacob's story is. He's a a backstabber, a heel snatcher, a deceiver. We know this, especially at the beginning of his life. And as you see God change him over his life, we see that this deceit, this lying must be put away from us. And that's what the psalmist in Psalm 24 tells us, that deception must be left behind us as we approach the hill of the Lord. There must be a discarding of the old ways as you approach the holy hill of God Almighty. The result of humbling yourself before the holiness and might of God is that God will lift you up. And that's what David says next. He says, if, if you do these things, God will lift you up. Verse 5 He, speaking of the clean person, will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of His salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek Him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. As you read these words, surely you see Jacob's story as as he is blessed by the Lord, as he receives righteousness from the God of salvation. The word righteousness can be described as vindication. God is saying that you can stand in my holy presence. That's what he's talking about. He says, such is the generation, Jacob and his family, of those who seek him and who seek the face of God. Remember the story of Jacob? He wrestled with God all night. and and The next morning when the sun rises, he realizes it was God. And he says, I have seen the face of God. Face to face, my life was spared. And he, he begged God to say, tell me your name. He sought the name. He wanted to know who this was. And he realized he stood face to face with God. And so I believe David is referencing back to this part of Jacob's story. As Jacob put off his old ways and stepped out in faith, we see him being blessed by God, even though his obedience was still imperfect. Jacob received righteousness, which could be translated vindication from the God of his salvation. And we see that God has been his savior throughout his life, saving him from death in the wilderness, from Laban, from his own cowardice. Remember how he was hiding on the other side of the river, pushing his family in front of him like human shields? God saved him even from his own cowardice. From Esau, from the Canaanites, he said he put a fear on the nations around him that they wouldn't come and find vengeance because his sons just murdered an entire city. 
God protected him from that. And God even spared him and was his savior when it comes to God's own holy wrath towards Jacob's many sins. God was the savior of Jacob, even from the wrath of God towards sin. Jacob's story puts on display the grace, mercy, and power of God to bless and save those who seek his face, even as we do it imperfectly. So, first, the first answer is only the pure in heart can ascend the hill of the Lord. That's what the psalmist points out. The first few verses, it says, only the pure in heart, one with clean hands, can ascend the hill of the Lord. But then we have to ask the question, because we know God is holy and righteous, and that He will not sweep sin under the carpet, we have to ask ourselves, how can God vindicate or declare righteous Jacob? How can He do this? How can God extend such grace and mercy to those who are stained by the sin of rebellion, deceit, theft, idolatry, and murder? This is Jacob's family that God is extending this grace to. How can God do this? If he is holy, if he is all-knowing, if he is just, and if he is the almighty God, how can he allow filth, the filth of sin, to enter into his presence? How? To be frank, most of us wouldn't want deceiving Jacob and his mass-murdering sons to come over to our house for the evening I don't know many of us that if we were living that day, we'd be like, yeah, come on over for a braai as they're covered in their bloody, gory clothes after murdering a whole city. Yeah, come over, come play with my children. Let's, you know, let's braai. We wouldn't want them in our house. So how could they ever enter the house of God? How? They aren't righteous enough to come into my house. How could they come into holy God's house? Was the blood of hundreds or even thousands of sheep sheep and goats enough to eternally wash away the sins of Jacob and his family? Was it enough? The answer is no. We find out in the New Testament, no. Because it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. That's Hebrews 10, 4. That's revealed in the New Testament. So how can God vindicate or justify or declare righteous the sinner? Declaring him free from the guilt and condemnation of sin and able to walk into the holy presence of God. How? I believe that David, again in Psalm 24, gives us the answer. Not because he necessarily knew all the details. No, I believe the Spirit of God took used David as an instrument to point us to what will happen, how God will accomplish this vindication of the sinner. So we'll pick up now. It's a complete shift in David's speech here in this one psalm. He goes, he's talking about the sinner who will be who can be pure. He's talking about the one who can enter the holy hill of God. He's pure, clean hands. He will receive blessing. He will be vindicated by God Almighty because he sawed his face and he turned away from evil. All these things. And now he switches and he turns to, and I believe is looking forward and revealing something through the power of the Spirit. Verse 7, he says, Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord. 
strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. This song paints the historical scene of a king returning home after victory on a distant battlefield. And he is leading his troops in a victory parade up the main road that leads up to the front city gates. And there there are these oaken doors and these bars, that these gates that, that, that bar your way from entering in. But the king of glory is coming up this main road victorious from a distant battlefield. And he is not by himself, though. In these victory parades, all those who faithfully served him get to share in his glory as he comes home and enters into the city and the gates will open for him. They come swinging open before he even gets there because of the victorious joy, the triumph of this city. But notice in David's psalm, That the victorious king is no mere man. This is not a man. No, this victorious king is the king of glory. He is the Lord. And if you look in your your scripture, most Bibles, they capitalize the entire word. Because in the Hebrew, it is the word Yahweh. He is the Lord, which is the name Yahweh in Hebrew. He is strong and mighty. That's El Shaddai. He is El Shaddai. And he is the Lord of hosts, which again in Hebrew is Yahweh. And that idea of hosts, he's talking about Yahweh, the commander of the armies of heaven. That's what he's talking about. In David's psalm, Yahweh is the one who leads his servants into the holy city. And they follow behind him as he brings them into his eternal glory and rest. That is the picture that David is painting in Psalm 24. Yahweh is the God of their salvation, the God of Jacob, the King of glory, who leads his people in triumphal procession into the holy city of God. That is the picture. So the second answer to this, who can ascend the hill of the Lord? The King of glory, or Yahweh, can ascend the hill of the Lord. After all, it is His city. And His city welcomes Him home victorious with all those who are following Him. This is the point where every practicing Jew throughout Israel's history and in Jesus' day would have proclaimed, Amen! Let it be so! Yahweh is our God and He will lead us into our eternal rest in the holy city. That's what they would have proclaimed. They were believing this and hoping this. But the next claim of the Holy Spirit became a stumbling block which Israel as a whole tripped over. They would not believe it. And many religious people today still stumble over this truth and do not believe the gospel. In the New Testament, Jesus' birth is announced. And from that moment on, the writers of the New Testament all claim that Jesus is the King of glory. 1 Corinthians 2, 6-10. That Jesus is the God of our salvation. 2 Peter 1, verse 1. 
that Jesus is the commander of the heavenly armies. Revelation 19 verse 14. And that Jesus is the great I am. John 8 58. This plain looking, poor, homeless Jewish man is supposed to be the victorious king that leads his people into the city of God in eternal rest? Surely not. Paul writes to the church in Corinth about how the rulers of this age, both Jewish and Roman, rejected the king of glory because they said, surely not, or over our dead bodies. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 6-10 says this, We, saying the apostles, impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret wisdom, a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. Verse 8, none of the rulers of this age understood this. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. The Spirit of God has revealed the Son of God to be the King or Lord of glory. He is and always has been one with His Father, working and acting throughout the Old Testament as the Word of God, appearing as the angel of the Lord, God's, the Lord's messenger, creating blessing, commanding, promising, saving, wrestling, and delivering. The Son of God is one with His Father, not less, not more, distinct, yet equal. The Father, the Son, the Spirit, three persons in one God. But words fail to describe the beauty and the complexity of the three in one. But the author of Hebrews gets us closer, saying things like in Hebrews 1, Verses 1 through 3 saying, Long ago at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He, His Son, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And He... The Son upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purifications for sins, He, the Son, sat down at the right hand of the Majesty on high. Later, John will tell us the vision of Jesus that He saw, saying things like this, helping our language describe the complexity of the three in one. In Revelation 1, 17, we read, When I saw Him... Speaking of the Son, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me and said on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death in Hades. Here the Son of God is claiming the divine title the first and the last, which is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. This is a title that Yahweh reserves for Himself in Isaiah 48, 
verse 12, he says, I, Yahweh, the Lord, am the first and the last. This is what the Jewish leaders of Jesus' day stumbled over. And it is what many religious people today still stumble over. The fact that Jesus claimed he was Yahweh in the flesh. Yahweh in the flesh. And not only that, Israel stumbled over the fact that Yahweh in the flesh wasn't there to deliver them by the sword of his power or the sword of his mouth that came out and just conquered their enemies. No, he wasn't there to deliver them that way. No, he came to be their savior by dying in their place for sin. The king of glory, a plain, poor, homeless Jew who is murdered. The wisdom of this age declares surely not or not my savior. But brothers and sisters, the Spirit of God testifies to to our spirit through the Word of God, saying that Jesus is the Lamb of God and that the Lamb will conquer. For He is Lord of lords and King of kings, and those with Him are called and chosen and faithful. Revelation 17, verse 14. So this takes us back to our original question. Who can ascend the hill of the Lord? Who can ascend Yahweh's hill? Who can enter into God's holy city? Who is worthy of being welcomed as a child of God? The answer is there is only one man who is worthy to ascend the hill of the Lord. And that man is Jesus, Yahweh in the flesh. He is the promised king in Jacob's line, the son of David, whose reign will have no end. He is the son of God's greatest sorrow and the son of God's right hand. He is the victorious king to whom the gates of the holy city will open because it is his home. There is only one who is worthy to ascend the hill of the Lord. It is Jesus, Yahweh in the flesh. He is the king of glory that Psalm 24 describes, entering the gates of the holy city in victory. If the story ended there, we might be left hopeless. But praise be to God that he has not left us outside the gate in our unworthiness, covered in the guilt and shame of our own failures. No, the lamb that was slain has won the victory over sin, death, and the devil, not for his own failures, not for his own sin. He has won it for the sins of others. He has had victory over the sins of others. The king went into battle to purchase a people for himself, a people who will serve him in faithfulness, and with pure hearts. And how can we do that? How can we serve Him faithfully and with pure hearts? Because He has cleansed us with His blood. Because He has cleansed us. And He has purchased our vindication, our righteousness. Paul puts it this way again, trying to help us with words. 2 Corinthians 2 verse 10 says this. Paul says, But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance 
of the knowledge of him everywhere. It is this image of the king, and we are following him triumphant in victory in this procession, this victory parade behind him as he leads us to the holy city of God. And that is who we are now. And he says that as we follow him as our king and we are rejoicing in his victory, he says we are a fragrance of the knowledge of God everywhere. That should be true of us as we follow the king here in George. Yahweh, through the person of Christ Jesus the king, is leading us to the holy city of God in triumphal procession. Jesus is the victorious king of glory that David wrote about in Psalm 24. The blood of Jesus is what ultimately washed Jacob and his family clean. And I I confess to you and I call to you that if you are not in this triumphal procession following the king of glory, then Jesus says that whoever comes to him by faith, whoever believes on the name, on his name, that He will cleanse you of your sins and He will vindicate you in the courtroom of God. Jesus is the one who brought that to His people. The righteousness of Jesus is how Jacob's family would one day wear white garments as pure as snow. And that is our hope, how we are cleansed by the the blood of Jesus. We are washed clean, but we are not left unclothed. No, He clothes us in the white robes of His righteousness so we can stand clothed, pure, clean, before God. Jesus is also the Lamb of God that Jacob's thousands of sacrifices pointed to. The blood of bulls and goats cannot wash away sins, but they pointed to the one in hope, in faith, that he would ultimately have victory over sin and wash it away. So I ask again this question, who can ascend the hill of the Lord? Praise be to God. That the gates of heaven will open for the king of glory. And it will only open for him. But the gates remain open for all those who are washed by Jesus. And who follow him. Because we are found in him. It's not because of us. It is because the king went through the gates. And he brought us with him. As his servants. As his washed ones. Who are now righteous Because we're clothed in Him, in His righteousness. Because we were washed by His purity. His hands were clean. His heart is pure. And we are clothed as if we were in Him, in the throne room of God. And God welcomes us into His holy city. That's the picture and the question that we're going to focus on this morning. Who can ascend the holy hill of God? It's Jesus, Yahweh in the flesh. The praise be to God, he leads us in triumphal procession. So briefly, our response this morning. If you are not born again, and if you're not in this victory parade on its way to heaven because of Jesus, of faith in him, I plead with you, do not go another day without confessing your sin, leaving those idols buried in the ground, and following Jesus. But for the vast majority of you, you have begun the the journey of following Jesus to the holy city of God. So what should our response be as we think back to these things, as we see the words of David in Psalm 24, how he calls us to be pure, to have clean hands, to, to put lies and deception far from us? What should our response be? First, we wash our hands of sin. And this is a symbolic language of 
of not sinning against God with our hands or with our bodies. There are many sins that are committed with the body, and Jesus calls His followers to remember that even our bodies were purchased by Him and belonged to Him. 1 Corinthians 6.15 says this, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. He's not just talking about your soul. He's talking about your body. Every part of you belongs to God, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. The second response of the Christian, we purify our hearts. Purify our hearts. Some sins are so dishonorable and dark that they are hidden away in secret rooms in our hearts. Please don't don't let this just fly by you. I know this is true because I have lived there. Some sins are so terrible that society would never accept it, nor would our family or our loved ones or the government. And so we tuck them away and we live them out in secret idol-worshiping rooms in our hearts. These are the secret sins of the heart, the sins that no one else knows about. We tell ourselves we're not hurting anyone because it's lived out in our hearts. And by these thoughts and desires, we're not doing anything really. But God says that He sees the heart and that the fantasies and desires of our hearts are laid bare to Him. It is no secret to God because God is standing in that room, in that dark room, watching you bow before the idol of your lusts. We are so quick to judge Jacob and his family as idol worshipers, traveling through the promised land with little pagan gods filling their camelbags. I mean, you could just imagine them on camels, bulging with little idols in them. And we're so quick to judge them and say, not in my house. You guys aren't coming over for a bride in my house. But do you realize that the Christian who has secret rooms in their heart, filled with the idol, idols of lust or hate, That Christian is no better off than Jacob and his family. So many Christians are following Jesus, the King of glory, on on their way to the holy city of God as He leads them in triumphal procession. But all the while, they, they have their saddlebags, their hearts filled with the idols of lust, hate, greed, or bitterness. Christian, isn't it about time to bury these idols in the ground? To put them to death and leave them behind you. You may not have realized this, but these idols are weighing you down. And if you do not leave them behind you, you may one day find yourself left behind on the side of the road outside the holy city of God. You may be left outside the holy city of God because you discover you never were a true follower of the King of glory because you loved the idols of your heart more than Him. The third response for a Christian. We turn our eyes from evil. This is what David's pointing out in Psalm 24. Clean hands, pure heart. We turn our eyes from evil. We do not look on that which is evil. This goes hand in hand with the heart. Because the eyes are the gateway to the heart. And what we look at, it fills our hearts. What we look at ultimately fills our hearts. And we all know that today, televisions, computers, smartphones, these screens have become a high-powered fire hydrant spewing sewage water into our hearts. 
please, I'm not, I watch television. I'm not judging anyone, but we all know that the devil has his hand in these things. And that if we do not guard our eyes, we will drink deeply from the sewage of all wickedness known to man on these screens. Never before has this command to turn our eyes from evil been more necessary than today. Because Christians today spend countless hours with a screen in front of them, filling the secret rooms of their hearts. Sometimes, with God's Word, we can even read God's Word on these screens. But far too often, Christians are filling the secret rooms of their heart with sewage. But God calls us to get out the shovel of repentance. It's literally, repentance is really like a shovel when you walk into this room and you just start shoveling the muck out of your house. That's what repentance is like. And God calls us to pull out repentance on our knees, asking the Spirit of God to wash us, to cleanse every room in our heart to the point where He can come in and live in these rooms so that He can have control over every part of us, be controlled by the Spirit, not by these lusts. The fourth and final response of the Christian. We speak the truth. Jesus calls us to be so honest Truthful and reliable in our speech, in our everyday speech, that even enemies of the cross will be convicted in their souls of the faithfulness of our words and manner of life. But if we are liars and deceitful, how could we ever go to our lost friends and family with the truths of God? How can we be the mouthpiece of God, speaking the words of truth to others, if and if one moment we're praising God, we're seeing His praises in church, but then we get out into the community, we're cursing, gossiping, lying, deceiving. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Because speaking the truth in ordinary situations in life gives us the privilege and freedom to speak the truths of God into the lives of others. We speak the truth. These are only some of the things that Christians should be known for since we are the people of God who have been washed clean by the King of glory and now we follow Him on the way to the city of God. This fragrance of the goodness and glory of God in George so we might bring some others with us so that others might see the goodness of God, taste and see that the Lord is good as we live our lives here in George, as we follow Christ, and we look forward to the day that the gates open and we enter into the city of God with Jesus our King. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you again for your word. May the Spirit move among us, convicting us of sin, for we are all sinners showing us how we can love you and live you more, for we are all weak in our love. None of us realize how much we've been forgiven, so none of us love how much we should. He who is forgiven much loves much, but so often we all believe the lies of our hearts that we are really good people. We weren't really forgiven all that much. Yeah, Lord, I pray that your word would show us the depths that God the Son, God the Father, God the Spirit, the depths that, that Jesus went to in his humiliation in order to rescue us from the pit 
of sin and to elevate us into the holy presence of God Almighty. Lord, would you, would you change our hearts and our minds because that is how we then go forth and we have transformed lives in George for your glory, for the increase of your kingdom, and for ultimate reward when we see you face to face, when we see the Lord Jesus face to face. We love you. We long for that day. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen.